I know what you're thinking, punk. You're thinking, did he fire six shots or only five? Now, to tell you the truth, I forgot myself and all this excitement. But being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off, you've got to ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? Welcome to Filmstrip, featuring Rod. It'll be my word against yours. And Jay. I got to know. These podcasts will be spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. And I'm Ron. This is our review of The Enforcer, starring Clint Eastwood, Harry Gondino, Bradford Dillman, Pine Bailey, The Green Directed by James Fargo. Released in 1976 on a budget of $9 million, made over $46 million at the box office. So more 70s sleaze this time around, Ron, but a lot shorter. 96 minutes, a lot tighter runtime, and a little more topical. Terrorism and females in the world. Yes, two things that go hand in hand with one another. It's like ripped from the headlines twice. <laughs> so... <laughs> Exactly. It, 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 at least I don't remember anyone saying the phrase "women's lib." Yep. So I think we're. I think we dodged a bullet there. There's also a lack of racially in uh, racially incendiary uh, pejoratives in this film. <laughs> There's not nearly as many of them as there were the last time. I can only imagine the PC police got to. Or it's the lack of uh, John Milius. <laughs> I think that may also be part of it. I don't believe he had anything to do with the uh, writing of this. This, the, this was actually written by a couple of San Francisco film students. Um, and then they, they, they actually had written the film and then they stuck Dirty Harry into it after they saw... They saw Dirty Harry and Magnum Force and then decided, hey, let's, you know, stick Dirty Harry in this and we'll get it made. So before Hollywood had that idea, writers did it to themselves. I want that read into the record for, for everyone. So, but no, that's the idea. They took Patty Hearst kidnapping. Yeah. I would agree with that, yes. And, you know, they took the, they took the Patty Hearst uh, kidnapping and put it in there and then you know, married it with Dirty Harry, and what would Harry Callahan be dealing with in 1975-76? It'd be a different police force than, you know, 70 and 71 when he, you know, we met him first, and at that point he had been on the force for a while, right? So as he gets older, times change. But that's the weird thing about it. Like, his first partner is Hispanic. His partner after that is is a black guy. Is, like, is Dirty Harry just doomed to get a the next... I mean, is his partner after this going to be a gay guy? I mean, you you wonder. I mean, look, they, they will go with it. Next time, there is no partner. And then the last time, it's an Asian guy. So they do make the rounds. I don't. They don't ever go with sexual preference, but they, they hit gender and and uh, race pretty well all every way they can here. So uh, between them. I, yeah, I'm with you. I don't, I don't know that that was necessary. I, it also, this film, I think in some ways... Like if you wanted to do one of those recut trailers, you know, that like they'll take something and turn The Shining into like a Christmas movie or something, you know, just by changing the music and you know redoing the scenes, you could turn this into like a you know a buddy comedy 
between he and Tom Daly because it almost feels like that. Like if it wasn't a Dirty Harry movie, it would they would laugh at each other. And, they they definitely have those moments, like yeah. especially after she like kind of proves her worth to Harry as more than just the diversity hire. Yeah, they have some good. There's actually some good fun. I I will argue. You know, I love the chemistry he and Felton Perry had last time. I think he and Tyne Daly actually have pretty good chemistry together. Not romantic at all. That was actually written into the film originally. <laughs> Clint was like, "Nah, that ain't happening." So, and Tyne Daly apparently agreed because I don't think Clint was her type. But nobody wanted to see that. So you know, they no. they they took that out of the film, thankfully. But I think they left in the the banter, and that's that's fun. Is when you can have for lack of a better way of saying it, sexual tension, in other words, tension between people of different sexes, but not have sexual attraction between them. It can be fun. There can be some fun buddy stuff in there when you do that right. It's just the uh, it's the classic uh, mismatched partners uh, thing that Harry has basically been working with the whole time, except for uh, in the second film, where he's got a partner who's, you know, kind of like-minded, also a, a, a serious cop lifer type. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, what Early even says, you know, I'm not going to go teach college. That's all I know how to do. You know, and then and he dies being a cop. He gets blown up. You know, also continuing a tradition here of Harry's partners don't last long. You know, uh, Rainy Santoni, you know, lived but was definitely scarred for life and went back to teaching. And you know, uh, Early's dead and blown up. And as we'll find out, Kate doesn't make it much further either. So I mean, it's uh it's kind of sad to be Harry's partner. They'll make a joke out of that later in the series, but. Um, they even drop a line about it in this one that his partners don't laugh. Yeah, they're, so. yeah, they're already making the joke in this one. Yeah, so yeah, I, I should note he, he loses two in this one. So <clears throat> we'll we'll get to that. I think before we go any further, though, Rod, as best you can, sum up what the Enforcers all about. Actually, no, that's my turn. So you set me up for that, and I'll just have to cut all that out. Wonderful. So. <laughs> okay, Jay. Before we get too much further into our discussion of this movie, why don't you lay out what the plot? actually is for this particular film. Okay, I'm going to keep it kind of high level here, so we'll, we'll see what we get. So, Harry Callahan is reassigned from Homicide um, after his latest use of excessive force where he runs a car into a held-up liquor store to thwart a robbery and then shoots a lot of people. They actually send him to the personnel department where he's going to do interviews for new cops. How wonderful. Meanwhile, a terrorist group calling themselves the People's Revolutionary Strike Force led by a militant named Maxwell organizes a series of crimes in San Francisco hoping to strike a big payday. They kidnap the mayor and steal rockets uh, and rifles for their next attack, and Harry and his new female partner, Inspector Kate Moore, must work together to stop them. Callahan and Moore locate the gang on Alcatraz Island, where they battle the kidnappers, and Moore frees the mayor, but Maxwell kills her as she saves Callahan's life. He avenges Moore by blowing Maxwell, Maxwell up with a law rocket, and Harry stands by his fallen partner's body rather than receive a claim from the mayor as the cavalry arrives and credits roll. And that's the the quick summary of the Enforcer. That's a a, a uh, one of the things we were talking about. I think we were talking about it off the air. Is uh, how much this movie rips from the headlines, uh, so to speak, the People's Revolutionary Strike Force is basically the Symbionese Liberation Army without Patty Hearst. Yes, exactly. Uh, also, what's his name? Big Ed Mustafa's group is basically the Black Panthers. 
or the black militants from Black Dynamite, if you've seen Black Dynamite. <laughs> yeah, they're that too. Also, uh, Mustafa is the uh, pimp that got uh, killed in the last movie, and the guy that got you know the did he shoot five or six in the first movie? <laughs> the bank robberies. So he now black militant. That's his third role. <laughs> so in the Harry Halland series here. And it's funny uh, that they immediately head to um, Alcatraz for our um, whatever our climax. Climax, yeah, because not too long before this movie was made, a bunch of Native Americans took over Alcatraz to protest uh, federal policies towards the uh, U.S. government and the Bureau of Indian Affairs. Yes, yes, exactly. So I mean, they're they're pulling everything together here. Not to mention. Eastwood himself would wind up back here three years later with Escape from Alcatraz as a film, you know, study. So, there, I mean, there's lots of stuff here. I feel like of, of everything, and this, the story in this is that there were two San Francisco uh, film writers that were, you know, starting out, had written a screenplay, and then after they saw Dirty Harry and Magnum Force, they refashioned it to put Callahan in it. And, you know, it had the whole Patty Hearst bit and the militants and holding ransom in San Francisco. This film feels like an amalgamation of like 20 different ideas. And let's cut it down to the, the sleekest 90 minutes, the most economical thing we possibly can. Now, uh, the, 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 uh, San Francisco film, uh, film students or whatever, are those the ones who got the story credit? Or are those the ones who got the screenplay credit? They are the story credit people. The screenplay credit are people I think professional screenwriters brought in to, you know, punch it up. Because one of them never did anything again. <laughs> yeah. And and the other one actually wrote a bunch of Charles Bronson movies after this. <laughs> That's Worked on, awesome. uh, Death Wish 4, Murphy's Law, uh, The Big Score. Wow. Uh, Is that Dean Reznor? Is he the one that did all that? Gail Morgan. Gail Morgan. Okay, Gail Morgan's one of the story writers then. So um, Yeah, she's one yeah. of those film students. That, apparently, she took this idea of uh, yeah. Dirty Harry, and that's the only thing she's written since then. Well, well the guys that Eastwood brought in, uh, Silphant Reznor, had been people that he worked with before. Uh, Silphant had done, I think he had worked on Dirty Harry and had done some other stuff. And then Reznor had done Coogan's Bluff and went on to work with Eastwood on play, or worked on Mist, play Misty for me. If you've ever seen that, it's a really interesting thriller and had done High Plains Drifter and some other stuff. So, I mean, they, you know, these were people, these were Eastwood's cronies. And look, the director is his assistant director. Eastwood was going to direct this. And, he ended up not being able to because he was doing post-production on The Outlaw Josie Wales. So he got his first assistant director to come do this, which is a nice way of saying, I'm going to tell you what to do and you'll get credit for it. <laughs> and that's pretty well how it went, <laughs> what I understand. I guess as long as the check uh, doesn't bounce, it doesn't really matter. I don't think James Fargo cared. I think he's one of those guys that's like, he's like the guys that work with Brett Ratner. You know, it's like, yeah, <laughs> sure. Yep, I'm there, baby. So whatever whatever you say, Brett, whatever you say, you know, Frank. So, <laughs> I think it's one of those. So. When Clint Eastwood calls, you say, yes, sir. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, this is just Stephen Eady. So <laughs> if you will. So, but uh, beyond that, this does feel like, and we were talking about this off air too, that if you wanted to do one of those like joke remash trailer things, you can make like a buddy, you know, cop, comedy out of this with him and Tyne Daly because they do have good chemistry together and th- there's a lot of like funny witty banter between them. Yeah, which is really uh kind of a strange 
thing to think about. Yeah. Uh, well, I think those it, two. I think it, like everybody knows Tyne Daly as Cagney and Lacey, right? Like that's her most famous role at this point, correct? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I think she's she's known. Mo- I mean, she's done Emmy work and has got a Tony Award and all, all kinds of other things. But she's you know she's Detective Lacey. I mean, that's what I, that's what I knew her as in the '80s, and I think that's why she got this gig. Much like David Soul got Starsky and Hutch off of being in Magnum Force, I think she got Cagney and Lacey off of doing The Enforcer. Well, she was also uh, apparently on a TV series. No, I'm reading it wrong. Never mind. Okay. Just pick up with, you know, she got Kenny and Lacey off the Enforcer or whatever. Right. Yeah. Oh, I, I zoned out. Sorry. Oh, we're, fi- we're, we're talking about the chemistry they had together. Yeah, it's it's really weird to see those two, like, as a, on, on the screen at the same time. Mm-hmm. It's a really weird look, especially at this particular age. I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. What uh, Callahan is, or uh, Eastwood's pushing near fifty. Um, Tyne Daly in nineteen seventy six would have been thirty, and is about a foot and a half shorter. Yeah, know? it's 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 like they got to put her on an apple box so they can shoot them together at the oh, same time. Oh, she's in heels the whole film almost. I mean, it's just so they can keep them somewhat looking at each other, you know. And I'm not trying to make fun of the woman. I mean, she's she's short. Eastwood's a tall dude anyway, but she's short. I mean, she's very short and stocky and, you know, kind of plucky. And the, the thing is, and I read this in the behind the scenes, is that originally there was going to be, like, this romantic thing with them. And both Tyne Daly and Eastwood said, eh. And, and thankfully so, right? Because we didn't need that at all. Now, now, do you think Clint learned his lesson from uh, the Magnum Force? <laughs> Uh, I don't, dirty Harry love interest. I don't know if that that girl was kind of hot. I mean, you know, there wasn't anything wrong with that. I just think he was like, maybe we shouldn't try to do that again. <laughs> and I also think too, Clint. Clint at this point is involved in the behind the scenes, the direction. He, I think he's probably got some of the. I know Robert Daly's a producer he works with a lot, so he's clearly got some stake in this thing probably, and he's probably getting paid off of percentage on it as it performs. I'm sure Clint is like, no, let's make this as economical as possible. I don't need one of those Chimino three-hour things. <laughs> yeah. and, I don't, and I'm not going to do another gun born from Milius. So if we're not doing that, then you know what are we doing here? Well, let's, let's do topical stuff. We'll do Patty Hearst. We'll do, you know, uh, San Francisco political corruption, and we'll do women in the workforce. Yeah, yeah, shoot it, shoot it. You know, I think, I think that's how that went. I got to go do Outlaw Jesse Wells, which, if you've ever seen, is a brilliant western. It's a great film, yeah, and, and great. I would argue Eastwood's attention is much more into what that film was going to be than he is in this. He phones this performance in completely. This is a terrible Clint Eastwood performance. Well, there's nobody in the cast to to. We discussed it in Magnum Force. He needs people to push him. Yeah, uh, I think we discussed that. Yeah, um, we did. He needs somebody, and the only person, the only time he really looks like he's alive <laughs> is when he's in the scenes with Tyne Daly, and it's and it's once they've gotten past their rough introduction and they start to have that chemistry, that banter. That's when he really seems to like you know wake up. Yeah, it's, it is. It is like he's half asleep for most of the film. Even when John Mitchum, who's played the same, you know, DiGiorgio detective in the last two films, he's currently Harry's partner. He gets killed by the Liberation Army as they're ripping off a, a army surplus or something where they're stealing law rockets and all this stuff. And he gets killed, and it's like, eh, 
You know, <laughs> sorry, Frank. I mean, like, there's no tears over that at all. <laughs> I mean, it's very. It's I mean, yeah, he's used to like all his partners dying, but at the same time, this is a guy he's clearly known for years. Exactly. Like he should be. He should be affected by this. When Charlie McCoy got killed in the last movie, like it stunned him. It shocked him. You could see it. It bothered him when Early got blown up. You know, like he he should care, and he's just like, eh, whatever. You know. <laughs> And and for that matter, Tyne Daly doesn't really seem that invested in it either. No, she she really doesn't. Outside of her scenes with him, and she's really only in scenes with Eastwood. I think she's pretty good in her little action scene at the end. But she she has a funny moment when he's talking with the you know Big Mustafa, the the Black Liberation you know leader or whatever. She's she's surrounded by all these you know dudes. <laughs> she's trying to read them their rights and be you know very procedural cop lady. But you know it's funny, but. It's not, but there's nothing there. I mean, again, and I, and I will, I will lay all of this on something I told you off, off air. You can judge dirty Harry movies sometimes by how fun the, the, or how interesting the tagline is. In the first movie, it's all about the, the myth of the 44 Magnum, you know, and did he fire five or six? And so there's that, you know, Western bit to it. Then in the second one is a man's got to know his limitations. Well, I don't even know what this one is. <laughs> there's no line, like, other than, we need more women cops so we can get shot, you know, or whatever that awful thing he says in the interview to her. Yeah. You know? I mean, I don't know what the the purpose of I think the tag I think the tagline for this one would be like if you can't stand the heat, stay in the kitchen. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that is awesome. Somebody should have thought of that. <laughs> but the other thing too is that the protagonist in these films, you know, Scorpio had a personality. It's weird, and that's mostly Andrew Robinson, but it, you know, he had a personality. The four cops who were the killers and Briggs had personality to spare in that I mean, last yeah, movie. Yeah, because it was, it was four awesome actors plus that redheaded guy. Right. Deverine Bookwalter as the, you know, terrorist leader Bobby Maxwell, does he even get like five lines of dialogue? He doesn't say anything. He looks like a second-rate Terrence Stamp with blonde hair. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. The, no, he he's... He is a cipher, and like, if you're gonna have like a... What, what's essentially a cult leader, if you're gonna have a <laughs> cult, he needs to be like a real charismatic type of guy. I mean, I can only assume that uh, you know the the dude who was the real life leader of the SLA mm-hmm. is the dude who inspired Stephen King to create Randall Flagg, and this is the this guy this blonde lump is the best you can do. No, that's that's the thing is like I you know I, this is also a couple years before, but they had already made news. The People's Temple with Jim Jones was out. I kind of got a little bit of that off of these people too because that would have been topical being in Frisco. And but th- this guy's not enigmatic at all. There's nothing interesting about him when he's on the screen except the way he looks. I mean, the whole first setup. You talk about sleaze, man. Like these two gas company drivers see this woman with. I mean, if she had that those jeans hiked up any further, man, I we would have known her religion. And she, you know, <laughs> gets them to to you know, take me out to Marion County, says they can get shot by a shotgun. Now, now the gun shot effects have improved vastly in three years. I'll say that, but. Other than that, I mean, I was watching this going like, eh, that was interesting. What, what was the purpose of that again? You know, they, basically they steal the truck. That's the whole point. But it, I, I didn't, you know, put that together in any grand way. Nobody says anything about it. I just don't understand why, um, why they even had to take him out to Marin County. 
I know. Why couldn't I mean, you just shot them on the the road? <laughs> unless they were, yeah, because it's not like they were in the middle of the city. I mean, they were cl- they were already kind of out in the middle of nowhere anyway. I think it was that was where their compound was. Though we never really get taken into any of that. That's what that's all about. You know, it's that that's what I took from it. But it wasn't like we ever did a raid on the you know the family or anything. There's none of that in this. So I don't I don't know. And I mean, really, it. This movie is from, what is it, 1976? Yeah, this is 76, so. Okay, and that same year, if you want to talk charismatic, creepy performance, Mm -hmm. Steve Relsbeck was doing Charles Manson in Helter Skelter. Yes. You don't don't think you could go get Steve Relsbeck to just basically play this guy as Manson meets... uh, a uh, dude from the SLA whose name I can't remember. Well, better yet, can I just throw this out there? Why wouldn't you have Dirty Harry and his new female partner investigate something like the Manson family murders? That would have been incredibly topical, would have been, you know, a a big draw for the audience, I would think, and it would have been interesting. I mean, that mm-hmm. would what would Dirty Harry do with a guy like Charles Manson? Well, obviously you'd want him to shoot him, but hey, what we're showing here is a softer Dirty Harry. He's not as violent. As he has been, because and I think what they're trying to convey is that as he gets older, he's using his brain more than he is using the gun necessarily. Even though he shoots a guy with a rocket at the end of it, we'll get to that. But it's almost like you have to drive him into violence. Now, as we were before, he was the man with no name with with a name with a gun. I mean, that's just what he was in the first movie. Second movie, a little more thoughtful. This one, he's you know much more into the thought processes. And so, if you're going to do that, why not have him do detective work on something like the Manson family? Yeah, or just, you know, again, I compare it to Zodiac. Yeah, that was another one. It was, I think they had already done Zodiac, but and they didn't want to get into the, the rehash of it, but that would have been more interesting. Like, what if Scorpio had had a partner? And, you know, I guess that's that's too tropey even for the 70s, right? But uh, something. I mean, th- this one feels so out there. And, and I'll just jump ahead for a second. It feels so different than the all the other Dirty Harry films. It is a very... Sh- you know, odd entry, and it also it looks bad. I mean, this movie's cost more than you know the other ones did, but I think that's just the rising cost of production and the rising cost of the actors and things like that. Because this movie looks like a TV movie of the week. I mean, it looks cheap. It doesn't even look as good as a lot of TV movies. Yeah, yeah, that's, and it definitely feels like uh, sleazier. Mm-hmm. Even even more sleazy than Magnum Force, and that that had a a scene where a bunch of topless women got shot in a pool. You know how, mm-hmm. and they they managed to top that sleaze level. Yes, they did. I mean, and it, it all is in that early scene with the the Jorts girl. You know, it's really where they they top that. But there's also like there's no character to any of this. There's again, it's all very one-dimensional and just I don't care. I have no reason to invest in any of these people. And we get these these vignettes of scenes where they're ripping off the uh, you know, the the big uh, <clears throat> or they're going to, you know, they rip off the gas company truck and then you get Eastwood and DiGiorgio with the whole, you know, $15,000 of damage at the liquor store thing and then they do the whole interviewing bit which is a joke. And then they have Callahan and his new partner go out to learn how to use law rockets for no reason. You know, other than we gotta we we gotta have Chekhov's law rocket, you know <laughs> now. So uh, I mean, that's what that felt like. I was like, eh. I, could, 
I can only imagine that in in Magnum Force there was a scene where John Milius wanted them to have a law rocket. I don't even know if law rockets existed in '73, but because I think they were relatively new weapons to us. But well, I take that back. No, those have been around since the '60s. So yeah, he probably did. You're right. Maybe that. Maybe that's the one holdover from the Milius world. Was the well, it's it's just another inside joke. Uh, kind of yeah. like the whole Dirty Harry uh, picks up an Asian girl. Yeah, so, uh, so now we gotta. You, know, you can't just shoot somebody with the forty-four this time. He's got to shoot him with a damn missile. So you know that's how the movie's gonna end. But yeah, it's very. I don't know. It's very. It, it definitely feels like the third movie. Yeah. In a series where it's like, well, we got we kind of got more ideas, but uh, you know we don't have good ideas but at the same time like we could clearly make money off this character so let's just figure something out i think it is exactly that it feels like a cash grab and it it starts with eastwood for me again i feel like he's phoning the performance in he doesn't really want to be here i think daly is enjoying this because this is early for her in terms of doing film work and it's a chance to be a part of a big action franchise but she's also the token thing you throw in at this Mm -hmm. point and she plays it like that so there's that the you know you kill off a character that had been with you for a couple of films maybe people recognize him maybe they didn't this is before VHS and all that but you know he was a guy people would know John Mitchum and so there's no weight given to that and then these villains again the the only thing you get out of them that's remotely character motivation is in their robbery um, <coughs> excuse me in their robbery when DiGiorgio gets shot he shoots one of the other girls and Maxwell you know goes and after he stabbed him, he shoots her to finish her off because she's dead weight. You know, and that's all he gets. And I'm like, well, well that's lame. You know, like, we didn't need a reason to hate this guy more. <laughs> he's he's yeah, already a bad guy. I mean, they already killed a couple of innocent gas company dudes. Yeah, horny gas company guys that just wanted a couple of cold beers with a blonde girl. You know what I mean? And I mean, at the end of the day, who doesn't? You know? <laughs> I think we've all... Especially wearing uh, those they, shorts, man. I'm like, wow. And for the yeah. 70s, I was like, she's taking risks. You know? Yes, so, clearly. I'm just saying. So, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, there's no, there's nothing there. I mean, uh, the new partner thing is set up as a lark. It's a joke. You know, because all he does is antagonize this poor woman, and she keeps coming back for more because... She, she is a desk jockey. She's never made an arrest of any kind, we find out. You know, but as it turns out, she's actually pretty good because she has all this knowledge. She knows the law backward and forward. She knows procedure and she knows how to listen to Callahan because, you know, probably she knows at this point he's killed at least 80 people. And so, you know, I'm going to get behind that guy. Yeah. uh, If you want someone to teach her what not to do. Uh, Dirty Harry is a great choice for that. Yeah, that's the other thing is why would you ever pair someone that obviously you're you're hiring her for a lot of reasons. One of which is the the publicity and the public relations and the quota part of it. But why on earth you would ever pair her with this guy makes no damn sense at all. Like it's the worst PR you know HR decision ever. <laughs> it's terrible. Yeah, and it's and I don't really understand what um like why 
Like, why would they bring back uh, DiGiorgio and even Lieutenant Bressler came back for the first movie? I don't understand what the purpose was of bringing them back. I know. I mean, is anybody going to remember them? This Again, this is before home video. So do you remember who those people are? I mean, I, I don't know that you would. I mean, the only thing I remember about uh, DiGiorgio is the uh, too much linguine <laughs> jokes they keep going for right yeah too much linguine yeah i mean he's, he's too fat to get over the hill you know which they would play all the way through like will smith was playing that joke in men in black you know <laughs> uh, right. what are you talking about you you are half the man I, or i am half the man you are or whatever it was the line but yeah i don't i don't know man i mean it really it really surprises me as to what they're doing here you know and there there's also a tour de force around san francisco again like we're going to show what this is all about. Yeah, it's a it's another it just it just makes me think of Bullet. Mm-hmm. Uh, how there's so many iconic shots of San Francisco in that movie and they were like, "Well, people might remember this." You know? Yeah, I guess. I I don't know, but again, it's also thin. It's also thinly veiled too. Like, I don't understand what the people's you know liberation army is trying to do here right like they're apparently trying to get money but for what like they're like the underwear gnomes you know know, there's no there's no real plan which you know makes them even dumber you know like at least you knew you knew what scorpio was doing he was he was an agent of chaos to borrow some you know joker stuff and he just wanted to kill and he also wanted to get paid but he just wanted to kill people because he's a psycho the other cops just wanted to wipe the scum off the street well, you know, their way at Wild West. What do these people want? I think that that may be like a meta commentary on the SLA, mm-hmm. uh, how they were this whatever uh, supposed freedom organization, but all they did basically was rob banks and do drugs. Yeah, and you know that's the other thing too. We needed to see those people like zoning out because it was clear they were playing that role anyway, and we don't get scenes of them stoning up you know and i or or you know doing heroin or whatever it is like i needed that i think to fulfill their their uselessness yeah i think we yeah i think we really did miss out uh on something there mm-hmm. or you know just doing something to expand you know uh you know try to spread the message of the people or something you know do some kind of uh proto-communist whatever you know mm-hmm. it just feels like they were like well we don't really understand what the SLA are or what they're doing mm-hmm. but we like the name the name sounds cool and I like the idea of a bunch of hippies like shooting up banks yeah. so let's just make our bad guys the people's revolutionary front of Judea <laughs> or whatever <laughs> the church of religious consciousness would you like to make a donation to our terrorist efforts yes no i agree they don't seem to have any grand plan or if if it is it's not well spelled out and that's the other thing too like the whole terrorism plot of this like harry did more to thwart terrorism in the last movie we didn't talk about it much but the the uh plane hold up that was going on at the airport that he just happened to be at and he goes on there and tries to fly the damn plane before he takes everybody out you know i mean that that was interesting versus this paper thin nothing and they also they set up the mayor and the and the chief here to just be just the worst kind of like you know suck up politicians that just 
are useless people. Like, there's no way on earth anyone would root for these people, right? No, no, they're not. There's no one really to root for in the movie. Uh, Tyne Daly's annoying. Uh, Clint Eastwood's a dick. Uh, all the every other cop uh, or every other cop seems more concerned with you know CYA. Uh, the mayor seems more concerned with looking good in public. Uh, the, the terrorists are terrorists, but who don't have some sort of noble goal. I mean, like, Big Ed Mustafa's, like, the only, like, person who seems like he has a, you know, a, a brain in his head and a mission. Is it, well, let's talk about them, too. They get blamed for setting bombs and ripping stuff off. But in actuality, I mean, they're they're doing crime for sure, but they're not in near that level of stuff. You know, not even close. No, right. Yeah. Right, yeah. They're definitely, you know, their criminality is way overstated, and I think that was some sort of like, oh, well, the cops are just being racist uh, kind of thing. Which also was a topical thing of the moment. Let's let's throw that in there too. You know, it's, there's too many things. Again, this feels like TV movie of the week or like three TV movies of the week just sort of mashed together. Yeah, I, I don't I don't get it. I mean, it really it it's so haphazard and it just clunks along. And that's the thing. Last movie was over two hours long, and at times it did feel kind of long, but at least it kept you engaged. It kept you moving. This movie is boring and it's 96 minutes long i mean it is utterly atrocious to sit through this it's a slog yeah even the trip to the um oh where's it that they go the uh massage parlor or whatever yeah even you know even there even there where they should have at least thrown in some nudity because <laughs> it's the 70s you know why not yeah, uh, and it's not like that. They've been afraid of that in the past. They don't even really go for any titillation there. Yeah, there's there's almost none of that in this. I mean, this this again, this feels so hacked together. All you get, all you get is the uh, the bad comedy of the uh, old ladies in the phone sex booth. Yeah, which is awful. And and he comes in with the whole I'm Larry Dickman, you know, which apparently was some kind of inside joke again from Eastwood. And I don't, I don't know where, like it was his fake porn name. I don't know. But you know, there's some story behind that. But it's it's ridiculous. There's nothing, again, there's nothing to engage you and keep you ah, involved in this to me. Like, it, I don't know. I I got really bored with it several times in, in, through the course of watching it. Yeah, I, I definitely. Um, this is the one uh, that I fell asleep on uh, multiple times. <laughs> I can see why. I mean, because outside of the the obvious setup stuff of the law rocket, or if you're interested in the you know witty banner between these two cops, there's nothing else to really latch onto. Because as it turns out, Callahan finds out what he needs to find out because he makes a deal with the black militant, and then they get blamed for everything because the mayor is trying to you know, CYA and look good and all this. And Callahan's ticked off for it. And because of that, he ultimately gets suspended. I do, I do love the fact that Harry finally speaks his mind. Like, you know, it doesn't hold back. And so I was like, I got a seven pointed suppository for you here, chief. And whatever. <laughs> and I was like, wow, that's uh, okay. Tell us how you really feel. So yeah. I, I did. La I did laugh at that line. Yeah. I was like, don't hold back but, bones. You know, but I think I was so like starved for something to be amused by. Yeah. That, uh it it only seems funny in retro and like by comparison to the rest of the movie 
Exactly. Well, I mean, yeah, because the rest of the movie is just a terrible. You know, there's no other way to say it. It's not. It's not fun to watch, and it's hard to get through. And I guess that means we we need to get to the the end of it here because it does go down at Alcatraz. And I did think this was a neat set. I mean, a good idea because they ambushed the mayor after an old Giants game, which I had forgotten the Giants played in that crappy of a stadium at one time or another. But wow, so that made that makes Candlestick look like a dream. So I was like, sheesh. So uh, I'm glad that got destroyed. You know, somewhere along the way because that was before Astro turf like had any padding you know it was just you pretty much played on concrete so, yeah and um, the uh it was like the the same astro turf at your local putt putt course exactly and and just as as happily put together too is terrible so I, but we do get the the great showdown at alcatraz and i like the way that Moore is able to go down she goes with callahan after he's basically been laid off and you know we'll follow him on this. I like that she's willing to you know follow him into battle, as it were, because that's where he's going. And I think it's neat that she dies and dies saving Callahan's life. Yeah, that was uh, that was probably uh, one of my favorite uh, aspects is that little twist there where she's the one who saves him. Yeah, exactly. I mean, she she saves him. That hasn't happened yet. We haven't seen Callahan rescued by somebody else up to this point and i thought that was great it was a well well done bit and i think she got a good death scene too I, you know usually you're just dead and she you know is able to kind of milk it a little bit for lack of a better way of saying it and i actually liked the way that they um they came to understand one another i guess yeah exactly. that was one of the that was one of the few things i think that worked where he after he had given up his badge and she was like, well, you know, if I happen to find some information that may or may not benefit you, I may or may not, you know, <laughs> yeah, that kind of cool way, way of working through everything. Yeah. Yeah. Or just that she was willing to, to, you know, be the guy on the inside, so to speak. Yeah. Cause she wanted to see this resolved the right way too. She knew this was a PR sham from the, the, the brass and that this wasn't what, you know, real cops did. And so she wanted it to be done the right way too. And I think he respected her for that. And I think that the ultimate sign of that is when he rescues the mayor after shooting the law rocket at the guy who's trapped in the tower and out of guns and cornered, you know, they in, in a scene that it makes absolutely no sense. None, just, none at all. There's no reason for that guy. That guy picked the worst tactical position he could possibly find. So, yeah, I mean, there's, um, there's a big difference between taking the high ground and then abandoning your hostage. Exactly. Yeah, you just let him go so you can stand up there, run out of ammo, and look worried as a rocket comes at you and blows you away. Which, how that didn't kill the mayor, I still don't understand. But the mayor survives, and he's basically offering to you know pay Callahan's uh, non-existent children's tuition, you know, for life. And Callahan blows him off to go stand by the body of his dead partner. And you know, as as the the, the negotiators roll in, I don't think that's by mistake you hear them going we have what you want let everyone go and you know it's already been taken care of as if the smoldering explosion you know residue wasn't signed well callahan has been here right and it's if they learned nothing from the first movie yeah where they keep giving scorpio what he wants and he keeps killing people anyway exactly yeah i mean what's the yeah what's the point yeah you cannot negotiate with certain people you know you just have to you have to unleash your best weapon on him. Well, he unleashes himself as it turns out, I guess. So, 
I think this is just the proof that we need to know that the San Francisco Police Department is thoroughly worthless and corrupt. I, well, I mean, that's the point. That's what you get from watching this. It certainly feels that way, at least. So. And that's about all I got yeah. from the movie. Yeah, there's not much more, that's for sure. So, Well, I think we're at the point of the podcast where it's time to get final thoughts, recommendations, and popcorn ratings for the movie. So what are yours for The Enforcer? If I had to give uh, recommendations, I would say not watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, it's... There's not enough worthwhile to to merit a viewing. Even if you are a Dirty Harry fan, it doesn't really feel all that much like a Dirty Harry movie. It just feels like there's this jerk who carries around a giant gun and is mean to poor little Tyne Daly. Uh, and yeah, they 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 eventually come to be friends or whatever, and and she dies saving him. And there's a few neat wrinkles, but I don't think there's enough there to make it worth checking out uh I, so i'm gonna have to go with a small popcorn and it, it's definitely the weakest of the dirty hairy movies we've watched so far and it's definitely the one that feels like they took dirty hairy and shoehorned him into an entirely different movie i would rename this movie the reinforcer as in reinforcing what a bad idea can be when you run it too long like this feels like the worst chapter you could give in a series and i and i'm this is the guy that reviewed the eight hellraiser movies saying this you know there's there's at some point where there's nothing left to do and when i think when the principles are involved and in this case that is um eastwood when he is not fully engaged and interested in something and particularly this it's you can tell it it's and this is the first one that's felt that way but it is bad bad all the way around i'm with you i wouldn't recommend it i'd say skip it if you're watching this series if you watch this before our review came out i'm very sorry that you bothered to run this down and see it i hope it it only cost you a check on your library card and not any real money Uh, because i would never recommend anyone to sit through this and if i could have justified some way skipping it we would have but it's part of the series it's a bad movie just it's not even a bad dirty hairy movie it's just a bad movie altogether i think one of the things that makes it feel that it doesn't fit with the rest of them is that it doesn't have uh that great uh, score yeah that's everything about this feels cheap even though it's the most expensive one so far it feels hacked together and cheap and it's a small popcorn just burnt awful leave it in the bag (laughs) forget it i mean this is it's not the worst thing I've ever reviewed by any means. I'm, I know I'm railing on a lot, but it's a real disappointment, especially coming off of two movies that are really good. Yeah, and I think that's yeah, yeah, and I and I think that's what makes this movie that much worse is that it directly follows two really really good uh, '70s cop flicks. Yeah, I, that's the thing is it if it wasn't, gosh, if it wasn't just. Uh, if it wasn't following what had been such good entries, it, maybe it wouldn't sting as much, but it's, you can see it being better. And, and I'll go ahead and say now the next one up is, it's a lot better. You know, it's a l- way better, but it took them seven years to come back to this. Mostly because Eastwood didn't want to do this anymore. He wanted to do other things. He went and did other things and then decided, yeah, I'll come back and take a look at Dirty Harry now. And, and he directed it too. So I think he, you know, he wanted to have the reins on one of them and, 
it's also in his Sandra Locke phase, so we'll we'll talk about that too uh, next time when we get around to sudden impact. But I'm, I am happy to say it does come back up. Um, I haven't seen Deadpool in a long time, so I don't remember it, but I, I know the next chapter is not nearly as bad as this. So, so because I don't know how it could be, unless it was Leprechaun 4 or something. So, <laughs> so which probably in somebody's mind happened one time or another. In Hollywood. <laughs> Folks, thanks for joining us in this latest episode of Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com. Also find links to our other podcast ventures there. Hook up with us on Facebook and Twitter. Let us know what you think of the show and leave us a review on iTunes if you like the show. It helps other people find it. Until next time, for Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of their respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act Section 504C2, Title 17.